Hello folks and a very warm welcome to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the premier North Wales spare room based one man and his cat true crime podcast that seeks out and recounts some of the darkest, lesser known and sometimes scarcely believable tales from all across the UK and Ireland. I'm the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, Paul. My beloved black and white pain in the arse is Peaks. And you guys are the ever-wonderful enthusiasts who keep the show ticking over and you make all of the hard work worthwhile. It means the world as ever to be back with you once again and I thank you for joining me. And I hope as always that as you're hearing me say this, then you and all of yours are all good and you're all safe and well. So this episode, and it's a bit later than planned for various reasons I won't go into brings us a cap on the Margaret Murder and the Missing Motive trilogy that we've had here, in which I'll discuss some pointers about the case and give it as it stands a bit of a challenge, but we'll get onto all of that shortly. As well, apart from the bonus Patreon episode for this month, when we're looking at some more horrors over the holidays, this one is to be my final scripted episode of 2020, before I have a short break from the show as the new year comes in, although it's not like I can bloody go anywhere or do anything of course, but I need a little bit of time to recharge, and then I shall be back very early in the new year. I'd miss you lovely lot too much to be away for long. Now I said final scripted episode, because I do want to sit down and do a review of the entire series at some point, hopefully before the new year. So when I've got a minute and it's all in front of me, I'll go back and give my thoughts and a bit of behind the scenes on the cases that have comprised Series 5 of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Why I've chosen them and how it was researching them, that kind of thing. And I'm not scripting that whatsoever, I'll just turn the mic on and I'll just go for that one I think. So it'll be warts and all and I'll get that done as soon as I can do, with wine, because it's been that kind of a bastard of a year hasn't it, eh? Before we crack on then, big thanks are going out here to both my returning and new Patreon supporters of The Enthusiast, with shoutouts for Blue Tiger, Ollie Cutler, Simon Dovey, Judith Robb, Dave Murphy, Nat, Effie MacDonald, John Lenihan, Emma Greaves, Vanessa, Chris Riley, and Dawn Ackrill and M, who have opted to sub- annually support the show. Thank you so much and all the very best, you lovely lot. Your support really does mean the world. I know I say it all the time, but it does. And stuff has gone out to some of you, with me really hoping that it gets to you soonest with the backlog of Christmas posts that there inevitably is right now. My postie looks like he's got the weight of the world upon his shoulders in December. He really always does. If you too want to join these guys and get yourself the soon-to-be 22 unreleased bonus episodes of The Enthusiast, including tales such as The Mystery of Leatham Street, The Samaritan and the Salvationist, Maths, Misunderstandings and Murder, or Pierpoint's Last Drop, to name just a couple, then it's easier to do than pissing Tom Cruise off by standing with your arm around someone in front of him, and it's cheaper than, wait for it, the return of the good old Poundland sex toy. And they do exist, I was in Poundland the other day as it happens, and I posted a photo up in the show's Facebook discussion group of some wonderful looking sensual missile that I found on the shelf there, that apparently are part of an upcoming range named Divorce. Divorce, yeah. Some lucky ladies out there this Christmas, eh? You truly know that your fella loves you, don't you, when you get a quid's worth of battery-operated boyfriend and the range is probably named after what it would cause and it would just be modelled by Karen Matthews or some other swamp-hopping mutant you can just imagine, can't you? Yuck. Once again, I'd like to remind you that tickets for CrimeCon 2021 are still available. The must-attend weekend next June down in Londinium where you'll experience an immersive, interactive weekend with all manner of guest speakers and authors from the true crime world, plus a myriad of your favourite podcast hosts from the shows that you listen to. UK True Crime, They Walk Among Us, Murder Mile, Seeing Red, Men's Rear, Lady Justice, The Unseen Pod, and that's just a few. The list goes on and on. I'll also be there in attendance for the weekend along with these guys and others, and I look forward to some of you guys being there too. Now the early bird price tickets for the event have all now sold out, but fret ye not, tickets are still available and the organisers have generously offered so that if you get your tickets and you quote enthusiast when you come to check out, 
you'll get them at a 10% discount knocked off the total cost. And because January can be a bit of a too much month left at the end of the money time, can't it? The organisers have even offered that from the 1st of January, you can spread the payment plan out and pay in three instalments. How ace is that, eh? As I've said before, if you let me know also that you've used the Enthusiast Code, isn't that a Bond film title or what, eh? Sounds ace that, doesn't it? The Enthusiast Code. There'll be a thank you something from me waiting at the event for you. I'll make sure of it. The link to the CrimeCon website where you can get your tickets is within the episode show notes. Get yourselves on it, and I look forward to seeing some of you guys there. Away from cheap Poundland dildos and stroppy Hollywood actors now then, we're back here to cap off this absolute bastard of a year by finishing off what became a trilogy concerning the brutal murder of Margaret Wilson, a 66-year-old grandmother slaughtered, having her throat slashed, in the middle of the afternoon whilst walking along a country road very near to her home in the East Yorkshire village of Burton Fleming back in February 1995. We heard an account of the resulting investigation and how it rapidly led to a man named Derek Gordon Christian, a 32-year-old factory worker who lived in the East Yorkshire area, becoming the prime suspect as he kept cropping up in the investigation as a result of differing lines of inquiry. He was similar in descriptions to the artist's impression of the suspected killer. He had a similar car to the killer's. He worked where the murder weapon was found to have originated from. He couldn't ultimately be alibied against the crucial time of the murder, and fibre evidence was later found on items of his clothing that was microscopically indistinguishable from some 78 fibres found on Margaret Wilson's heavily bloodstained clothing. Arrested and charged with a murder more than a year later, following a trial in November 1997, Derek Christian was convicted of the killing by a jury's unanimous guilty verdict and was subsequently sentenced to life imprisonment. He still remains incarcerated to this day, more than 23 years later, and throughout his imprisonment has continually denied having any culpability in the crime. Now all of this is explained much fuller in parts 1 and 2 of Margaret Murder and the Missing Motive, so if you haven't already listened to both parts of the multi-parter, I'd advise that you stop here and head back and catch up with those first because the context of a lot of this episode will be lost upon you if you don't. If you have done, and you're raring to go like a purple-nosed Weatherspoon's gnome at the end of lockdown, then what you'll find with this part is that it's where I give my own thoughts about the crime, the thinking out loud bit, you know, look at the evidence that convicted Derek Christian, and list any questions that the case raised with me. And this one did raise a fair few, I tell you. The episode contains details and descriptions of a crime and events involving an elderly person that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. So as ever all, please use your discretion whilst you're listening in. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast as we complete the case study that I've entitled Margaret, Murder and the Missing Motive. So, the first point to have put Derek Christian even onto the radar of police was his car, a silver Austin Montego estate model, and this is following garage owner Alex Bristow reporting to police that he'd sold one six weeks before the murder to someone in the local area, after hearing the appeal for a white or silver vehicle of the same make and model as being used by Margaret's killer. Now there are a few sightings of the killer and his vehicle that we've mentioned in the episodes and what I'll do is run through them in an order focusing firstly upon the sightings in the immediate vicinity of the murder although we will completely ignore the account of Linda Rounding as it was admittedly an entire cock and bollocks story that led to her doing six months bird for perjury an action that I hope she is still ashamed of to this day. The two farm workers who witnessed the attack, who were first on the scene and discovered Margaret's body, Martin Hornsey and Nigel Houseman, who I name as the most important witnesses, because although they were some 400 yards away from the road at least, could see well enough from their raised positions sat in tractors to identify Margaret by sight, and are the two witnesses that can certainly, definitely place the killer's car at the scene of the murder. They were both certain that it was a Montego estate car, but whereas Martin was certain that the car was white in colour, 
Nigel was less certain and believed that the vehicle could have been white or silver, hence the appeal point for a Montego of either colour. Now there's no reason for either man to be mistaken about the type of vehicle. Old Montego estate cars were quite distinct and easily identifiable. And as I've said, these two had a good view of the road. Just mere moments before the murder, and not a great distance away in the village of Burton Fleming itself, Marie Cundall had seen a guy in a white estate car who had terrified her so much with his frightening stare that it was burned into her mind and who she'd watched drive off and turn onto the road to Rudston from Burton Fleming, the very road that the murder occurred on. Now Marie didn't impart this information and sighting until almost a week after being spoken to in initial house-to-house inquiries, where she'd said nothing at the time. For what reason has never been properly ascertained, however, it is claimed that she was silent through fear, but was later to agree that it was a Montego estate car that she'd seen. Now she was also a lot closer to the vehicle than the two farmhands, close enough to physically describe the driver, which we'll come on to a bit later. And so you'd think that if she was close enough to describe his features, then she certainly wouldn't mistake the colour of his car, unless possibly she was so frightened by this staring man that his was the predominant memory, and in her panic and haste to get home to safety, she couldn't be absolutely certain of the car colour, or perhaps was even colour blind. Now, I'm not sure if you can get white or silver colourblind. I don't know. I'm not sure. I imagine that anything is possible after that bloody nonsense with the is it black and blue or is it white and gold dress some years back. Do you remember that? Load of old bollocks. It was black and blue, by the way. Then, again only moments after the murder, Jack Lewis, the motorist who'd stopped after being flagged down and who'd raised the alarm at Eastfield Farm, said that he'd seen a light-coloured estate car travelling south in the direction of Rudston, as it had passed him heading in the opposite direction, so he would certainly have remembered this in light of subsequent events. And two other women driving near to Burton Fleming only moments after the murder, Louise Gray and Karen Holloway, also saw what they described as a white or dirty white, possibly grey car respectively, travelling at high speed in the opposite direction, heading away from Burton Fleming. Now unless the roads around Burton Fleming happened to be an inviting drag strip for white estate vehicles back in the mid-1990s, then due to the timings and proximity of these sightings and the rural location, it's very likely that each of these people are describing the same vehicle. And although a Montego is the consensus for the vehicle's model, they do vary in description of the vehicle's colour from light to possibly silver or grey. We know Derek Christian's car was a Montego and was silver, but what shade of silver the car, a 1988 registered model, is, is not documented, be it light or dark. But it is certainly described as being silver through both a search of vehicle records for it online, which I did, and on the official police personal descriptive form that was filled out at Derek Christian's first interview with police just two days after the murder, a document that is marked Exhibit 81. I was in work the other day and researching this I went out into the vast car park that we have in my work and looked at the staff cars and I found that depending upon the distance that you see a vehicle from in conjunction with the light or the glare of the sun and things like that I found that it's feasible that you can confuse white with a light silver and vice versa. It was helpful that there was more than one pairing of white and silver cars parked next to each other so I could see this from a variation of distances, both from close and from a couple of hundred yards away. A close-up, not a problem, I wouldn't think you'd be mistaken either. But from a good distance, there certainly is the room to be mistaken for this. My workmate, whose opinion I asked, agreed with this also. So for police to later observe that in glaring sunlight, a silver car could appear white, I'd have to agree but I'd have to say only depending upon distance. The sighting by Wendy Price of a man in a white car, and she was very specific about this colour, who stalked her two hours before Margaret was killed, ten miles or so away from Burton Fleming, has also been associated with the murder, and she was taken as a very credible witness, enough to be called to appear in court to give evidence concerning the sighting and enough for the suggestion of there being a man prowling around the East Yorkshire area at least two hours before the murder 
to be a mainstay of Derek Christian's defence. There's no reason to suggest Wendy was attention-seeking for some reason, or was mistaken about the vehicle's colour, and the chances of two witnesses committing perjury in the case are pretty remote indeed, aren't they? But then this brings a dilemma. If this did happen, and this person in the car who frightened her so is the same killer who brutally murdered Margaret Wilson, then it cannot have been Derek Christian, because he would have at the time been in work at McCain's some 13 miles away, where he could be accounted for. Now this may of course be someone completely unconnected with the crime, and there is a chance Wendy may have mistaken the intentions of the driver, but then it makes you think, how many people are driving around a pretty localised area of East Yorkshire in a light or white estate car, unnerving lone women on a Wednesday afternoon in February? With Derek Christian having come onto the radar, he was visited by police and the personal descriptive form was completed, which amongst other things described him physically and listed amongst his facial features as him having a beard. No moustache, just a beard. Now at this point, it's possible that there wasn't a physical description of the killer available. Both the farm workers were too far away to accurately describe the killer, and if there was one, then it would only have been the first artist's impression of the suspect that was available. Marie Cundell wouldn't have been spoken to about her sighting at this time, although she would have been spoken to by house-to-house inquiries. So the first artist's impression is the one that Louise Gray helped to compile. When Marie Cundell came to impart her information, her sighting was considered relevant and important enough to have her create a second artist's impression with a different sketch artist. And because she'd seen the suspect, now I want to say killer, but of course you can't say that with complete certainty for a longer period, then this was the one that was used going forward in all ongoing appeals. I posted both of these artists' impressions up side by side on the show's Instagram page, and personally I was very struck by the similarity between the two of them. It's undoubtedly the same person being described, I would have thought. Both artists' impressions depict someone who is clean-shaven. Now as Louise's description stems from a fleeting glimpse at the person she's describing, let's focus upon Marie's description. After all, she saw the person for much longer. 20 to 30 seconds is quite a bit of time to be staring at someone or something, and as we said about the car, she's more likely to remember A, being that close, and B, because it was so memorable because it frightened her so. I would hope that Marie's impression, made as we've said over a week after the murder, was a genuine recollection and she wasn't influenced in any way by the earlier artist's impression, but she was adamant that the man she'd seen, who had stared at her so hard that she almost turned to bloody coal, was clean-shaven. What is reportedly part of her official police statement says, I quote, the driver I would describe as a white male and he appeared to me to be a large man quite well up in the seat, his head near the roof. He had large dark staring eyes with a rounded face with a proportionate nose. I know he did not have thick lips and he was clean shaven and did not wear glasses. I would say he was aged in his late 30s or early 40s. No beard. Now at the time he was first spoken to, how pronounced Derek Christian's beard was, wasn't annotated on the form, it just says, beard. Whether this was a bit of bum fluff, a few days growth, or a big bloody rag and bone man of a bastard of a beard, who knows. The website Beyond Reasonable Doubt, a link to which is in the episode show notes for you to have a read through, claims that more than two years later in court, this beard was described by one of the officers who conducted the initial interview as a pronounced goatee beard. So then, why wasn't this length and type of beard described in more detail on the form? But okay, so he's now on the radar and he has a car that matches the general description and colour of the killer's vehicle. Yet he can account for his afternoon and check-in can certainly place him in work 30 minutes before the murder and in the supermarket just over an hour later although for the crucial exact time of the murder, he cannot be alibied, due to him claiming that he was travelling home. So at that stage, he's been spoken to and accounted for himself, with no agitation, no uncertainty or vagueness about his movements, 
and although he has a similar car and cannot be decidedly ruled out, at that stage there was nothing to suggest that he was anything other than just one of several persons of interest, with undoubtedly police having several others higher up in their list than him. The other white or silver Montego owners in the East Yorkshire area, the ones with a history of violence. And then the knife is discovered. So the knife is found thrown underneath a hedge between where Margaret had her throat cut and where the killer's car was estimated to have been parked. It's aged, short and stubby, but still wickedly sharp, and traces of blood found upon it following forensic examination are matched with Margaret Wilson's blood. Boom, there's your murder weapon. There bears the question why did the killer dispose of the weapon at the scene, but we shall come on to questions raised later. No fingerprints were found on the knife, and no traces of blood other than could be matched to Margaret Wilson's, so there's no chance of identification of the killer there. The Sheffield manufacturers of the knife, J. Adams, were quite easily traced due to the visible inscription on the black plastic handle, but this then led to a whole myriad of possibilities as to where the knife could have sourced from and who could have obtained it, beginning with the manufacturing staff at J. Adams themselves, as there was no serial number that could have narrowed the search parameters down further. A hell of a job to sort through, I'm sure you'd agree. But examination of the blade by Professor Worth, and a truly remarkable piece of work here I thought, I'd proper buy him a pint for it, eventually revealed that the telltale black stain on it as originating from cutting potatoes, and could further pinpoint it through testing of the chemical composition and elimination of the water used to wash the blade from water sampled from the 19 different companies in the East Yorkshire area that were customers of J. Adams, specifically to the McCain's food processing plant in Scarborough, who happened to be the largest customer of J. Adams for those particular knives in the East Yorkshire area and what was also the workplace of one Derek Christian. So as this is another piece of circumstantial evidence pointing towards him, he was subsequently brought in and spoken to once again by police and shown a picture of this knife, and claims that he's never before seen one like it. Now it's not described exactly what Christian's duties were during his employment at McCain's, but accounts put him as being a general labourer there, not a production line operative. Clearing out some 200 lockers sounds like a general labouring task anyway, doesn't it? And so it's possible that he would have no cause to use one of these knives in his everyday work, therefore may not have associated the one shown to him by police with being one from his place of work. Yet it is reported that during this locker clearout that I mentioned, some 50 of these knives were found, and in the nine months before the murder, McCain's had bought more than 1,800 more of these knives, so they were quite commonplace about the plant, enough there to build your own bloody iron throne with them if you wanted. Admittedly then, this would be a strange thing to say considering that Christian would likely have seen one of these beforehand during the course of his work. But still, he was just one of more than a thousand people, current and past employees included, who could have obtained it. Circumstantial evidence again, but the knife joined the car on the ever-growing list of circumstantial evidence that was pointing to Derek Christian, and so now he was scrutinised that much more closely, and other things about him that matched up with the estimated psychological profile of Margaret's killer were noted. For example, whereas the killer was estimated to live within 25 miles of the murder scene, Christian lived less than 10 miles from Burton Fleming. The killer possibly had a military background due to how he had felled Margaret, and Christian had, until the previous year, been a sapper in the Royal Engineers. Now I'd be inclined to agree with the former there, as we've said before on the show, for the simple reason that offenders tend to offend somewhere that they know, for comfort with its layout, its access and egress from the scene. But this is by no means certain. If the sighting two hours before the murder by Wendy Price is of the same person, then this could be someone just driving around the general area, not really knowing the area or where he was going, until he found himself in Burton Fleming, and that built-up urge to kill finally blew. The previous military background is also somewhat of a reach, I thought, based on no evidence other than a bruise to the back of Margaret's right thigh. Now, 
if you ran full pelt after an elderly lady, and I must admit I got a bit of gentle backlash following the episodes for describing 66 years old as being elderly, I have to admit, but she was a pensioner, what else can I say? So if you ran full pelt after her and leapt on her from behind with murderous intention, then she'd likely bruise from the point of contact that you made with her, and she would of course hit the ground like a one-legged fella doing the okey-cokey. You don't have to be ex-military to do that. I thought myself that was a bit of a jump. But the boffin with the bow tie mentioned it, and Derek Christian was ex-military, so this was another pointer towards him in the eyes of police. So, with the origin of the murder weapon established, mass questioning at McCain's now started and Christian was spoken to for a third time, where he once again repeated the same stories he had twice told police concerning his movements on the day of the murder and was calm and collected throughout his interview. But here, his name again came to police attention during this mass questioning due to his relationship, if you can call it that, with Tina and she described what on the surface from her account could appear as obsessional behaviour towards her, bordering upon stalking from Derek Christian. Sending unsolicited pictures of yourself or leaving notes, which saying what exactly were never revealed, and phoning up having discovered your home number and address is a bit eyebrow-raising, mind, but there is no record of this making Tina uncomfortable enough to it being reported officially to police at any time, or even to bosses at McCain's to have a word with him, and I'm sure that infatuation like this, be it unrequited or not, goes on at many business premises, doesn't it? So whilst it may make him seem a bit it doesn't make him a killer, does it? But by this point, he was already up there in police minds as a serious suspect due to the pointers that kept pointing back towards him. And here was an account of him having what you could argue, as I said before, as obsessional behaviour towards women. So he's rubbing jam over himself, he's so juicy a suspect now. The car, the knife, where he lived, his general resemblance to the artist's impression of the killer, the fact that he couldn't be definitively alibied, and now the suggestion that he could be a bit of a weirdo towards women. By this time also, this opinion had been shared by a fresh team who had looked at the case file and who advised that the investigation team from East Yorkshire focus upon Derek Christian as the person of interest in the inquiry. So in March 1996, Derek Christian was spoken to for the fourth time, but arrested for the first time. There are no records of any of the other times he was spoken to, being even under caution, let alone under arrest and a number of items were seized from both 20 New Walk, the home in Driffield where his wife and children lived and where he lived part of the time, and 41 Cornfield Crescent, his parents' house in Bridlington, including a number of articles of clothing that Christian had admitted wearing on the day of the murder, and once again personally identified as being his. A newspaper containing an article relating to the one-year anniversary appeal about Margaret's murder, was also recovered from his parents' house during this search, and when asked about why this particular copy, the only one of that newspaper, the whole Daily Mail, that was found in the house, why it had been kept, Christian retorted that it had been kept for the details of massage parlours in the area it contained, as he wanted to visit one as a birthday treat to himself. It's not reported as to whether he'd done this in the month that had passed between publication of this newspaper and his arrest, and how definitely this could have been verified if he admitted doing so anyway is unknown. Now, whilst much was made of this newspaper being some sort of a trophy to have kept due to the feature on Margaret's murder in it, it's hardly conclusive proof of this, is it? If a killer was saving newspaper cuttings about the crime as a trophy, then wouldn't there be a lot more of these found, and mostly, wouldn't they be from a year previously? when extensive coverage of the hunt for Margaret's killer would have been more widely publicised. I'd be less inclined to believe this as a trophy myself. Arguably, many other people would have a stack of newspapers from previous weeks or months that they keep. Perhaps for lighting the fire, perhaps used for animal bedding or cleaning. My mum used to save them and still cleans her windows with a newspaper. Or perhaps it's as simple as that you're just a shit housekeeper. Who knows? There are other, more likely things I believe would have been kept as a trophy by the killer, 
such as Margaret's scarf for example, much of which was made out of it being missing from the scene, yet it wasn't found during these searches. There is another more obvious trophy to have kept, but I'll come back onto that sometime later, and we'll continue following a short word from the show sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. Now you must have heard of Best Fiends, right? If not, where have you been? I find myself having a thrash on Best Fiends whenever I'm in the middle of writing or researching the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, and I need a bit of an escape for a few minutes. It's a fun, colourful, strategic puzzle game that's challenging enough to make you ponder a move like a grandmaster, but also casual enough so that anyone can play and enjoy it so it's stress-free. Before you know it, you'll be obliterating slugs, crates, light bulbs, and all sorts of other weird and wonderful things, from the frozen hills to the endless desert on your way through minutia. You'll meet and collect all manner of colourful and lively little fiends to help you through your journey as you progress, like Quinky, Buggles, or Pop, and before you know it, you'll be several levels up and wanting to play more. As it's been constantly updated to offer you new themed challenges, events and levels, Best Fiends always has that fresh game feel, and I found myself wondering where the time's gone whilst I'm playing it. Say, if I get to a certain level that's particularly more challenging than others, I'll have go after go trying to get through it to progress, and if you play it, you'll know exactly what I mean, you'll be that hooked on it. It's a perfect pastime in these times of social distancing that we face, as it's a way you can stay connected to your friends online by sharing your progress as you casually compete, or you can simply play it by yourself. You don't even have to be connected online to enjoy playing Best Fiends. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's Best Fiends, friends without the R, Best Fiends. With nothing but the circumstantial evidence, pointing as it may be, but still circumstantial, the interview under arrest went pretty much nowhere and Christian was released without charge on unconditional bail but his clothing was kept for forensic examination, and as we've said, his car was once again forensically examined. And now, a day after his release, he comes forward and wishes to change part of his statement, his alibi concerning his movements on the day of the murder, to a story where he was helping out his in-laws with him moving a roll of linoleum for them from Scarborough to Driffield at the crucial time Margaret was killed. Now this wasn't just concocted out of thin air, both George and Jean Green agreed that this happened, indeed, George Green had been the one who had reminded him of this, and both gave statements to the effect that this move happened on the day of the murder, although Jean was less sure and agreed that it could have happened a day later. It is feasible enough to have forgotten that this had happened, as Christian claimed he had, as they were talking about events more than a year previously and I don't know if you're the same as me, but I struggled to remember what I had for tea the day before yesterday. Now at the time, there was no way to verify this with an itemised telephone bill of the Greens line for the crucial period, because it couldn't be found for some reason, but regardless of this, it was a good alibi that could be backed up with two witness statements to the effect. This is also on top of what could be verified about the existing alibi that Derek Christian had already given and that could in part be verified digitally, which is more than many can say I'd argue, if I asked you to describe your movements at a particular time. It's probably a lot easier to do today with the technology, the CCTV and the social media that we have, but this is more than 25 years ago we're talking about here, and Christian could prove himself definitively at two different locations 65 minutes and 21 miles apart. The clocking on and off machine at McCain's had Christian verified as clocking out from work at one minute past three on the afternoon of the murder. Give a minute or two, five tops, to being out of work and into your car away home and it puts it to gone, say, five past three. Now I used a couple of online route planning sites while researching and searched out the distances travelling various ways between the site of the McCain plant and the location of the murder and there are three direct ways from the McCain's plant on Scarborough's Havers Hill. 
There's the route Christian claimed he would use to travel to and from work each day, which, allowing for the detour turning off at the village of Foxholes, is almost 17 miles to Burton Fleming. There is a route going the opposite way out of Havers Hill and heading down through the village of Caton onto the A165 Moor Road and into the village of Hunmanby, before following Hunmanby Road down into Burton Fleming, which is almost 13 miles, and there is a way through Caton down Carr Lane onto the village of Flixton before turning off here on Back Lane down to the village of Forden and heading down Mill Road which leads into Burton Fleming, again which is almost 13 miles in total. The quickest journey out of these, the second described, shows it today to be a 21 minute journey, so from leaving work Christian would have had to have taken this route and had it in mind to drive straight there to have been the man in the car that stared at Marie Cundle and frightened her so. And this is not taking into account any traffic or roadworks possibly encountered on the way. Plus the roads here are mostly single track roads where a variable speed of driving is not entirely practical. It would be hazardous to speed on them, I would have thought. Then he would have had to have committed the opportunistic murder and sped off towards the quickest route home from here for him. Onto Rudston, from here onto Killam Lane and into Killam Village, down the Driffield Road and onto the A614 before it joined onto the B1249 Scarborough Road and home, which is 10.5 miles and 17 minutes, which would have took him to the exact moment that he claimed he had arrived home. It must have certainly been within 10 minutes of this time, as he had practically gone straight out again supermarket shopping. And we know this for the reason that Christian could be verified as using his cash card withdrawing £30 in cash from a cash point at a bank in Driffield at 16.06 on the day of the murder and then being in the Quicksave supermarket less than 30 minutes later. So this is a 65 minute time window then, at least 40 minutes of which has to have been Christian travelling in a vehicle. He would also have within these remaining minutes have found a victim committed murder, sped off and stopped somewhere where he cleaned up himself and his car, composed himself and arrived home not giving off a hint of what he'd just done, composed enough to have been in company with his family only a very short time after the murder and showed no signs whatsoever of being excited, agitated, wild-eyed, nothing, to have even gone to quicksave like nothing had happened. Now to me, it is stretching it somewhat this, but it is of course possible. How many times have we heard on the show of people committing pure horror and atrocity and then to all intents and purposes appearing pleasant and normal to everyone immediately afterwards? And the journey is certainly doable. It's a very very tight window but it is doable. It was tested by police driving the route that Christian claimed to have taken. But here also I noted why take a detour off why not attack someone in the villages of Foxholes or Langtoft that Derek Christian would have passed through? So back in the investigation then, there's still nothing ruling Derek Christian out. His new alibi is looking good though as it's supported by two witness statements, but it just can't be verified by a check of the Green's itemised telephone bill proving that the assistance with the lino had been arranged by telephoning him at McCain's. Though what time of the day this call was made is not reported, by the way. They've had to release him from arrest without charge on unconditional bail because they only have circumstantial evidence against him, however compelling and suggestive it may be. As we've said, it's circumstantial nonetheless. And then the forensic scientist Robin Falconer phones up and says, you're not going to believe this, and hits them with the fibres that he's discovered which not only finally convinced the investigating team as a collective that Derek Christian was the man who'd murdered Margaret Wilson, but when taken to the CPS, was considered as finally giving the collected evidence enough weight for grounds to re-arrest and charge Derek Christian with the murder. Now I went over this fibre evidence in the previous episode, some 78 fibres that were found on Margaret Wilson's coat. And if you recall, I said remember the phrase, microscopically indistinguishable. Whilst it's true that these 78 fibres were microscopically indistinguishable from fibres from three articles of clothing of Derek Christian's that were tested, the horrific Green Goblin fleece I called it, 
the green Carlsberg sweater and the bluey-grey jogging bottoms, other articles of clothing were also obtained and also tested against these fibres. This collection of 78 could be broken down further into seven different types of fibre, these being purple polyester, green polyester and purple acrylic from the fleece, green cotton and green polyester from the sweatshirt, and blue polyester and blue cotton from the jogging bottoms. So if you were a novice to true crime, you'd be bowled over with this amount, because 78 fibres is a massive number. In most cases, it's extremely rare to even reach double figures. However, this isn't the conclusive fuck you slam dunk that you'd expect, because microscopically indistinguishable does not mean the same it came from that garment unquestionably. At Derek Christian's trial in November 1997, the Crown's forensic expert Robin Falconer, when giving evidence and under cross-examination, made a number of telling admissions to the court, including, I quote, No single fibre or group of fibres can be attributed to a garment to the exclusion of all other garments, when he was discussing the uniqueness of fibres. If all four available instrumental tests are used and two fibres matched, it does not necessarily mean that they came from the same garment, garments are not unique, when discussing the uniqueness of clothing, and on the nature of fibre evidence itself, fibre testing is not an exact science, it is not comparable in this regard to DNA testing or blood stains. He furthered that he was examining the fibres found on Margaret Wilson for a highly distinctive population of fibres that may prove useful, but no such population existed. There was a large number, the forensic expert thought probably that ran into the hundreds, of other foreign fibres which could not be accounted for on the victim's clothing, as well as in the body bag that had been used to transport Margaret. He had examined each of these and claimed, None of these fibres match any of the constituent fibres in Derek Christian's clothes, nor in Margaret Wilson's own clothing. Asked about the source of foreign fibres on a person's clothing, Falconer continued, The domestic environment is likely to account for the majority of fibres found on clothing. In an ideal world, we need to check that fibres did not come from a domestic source. Now reportedly, no such check of any other clothing of Margaret's from her home was ever conducted, because her clothing had been given away to charity, so the only items ever tested were the clothes that she'd worn on the day of the murder. The clothing of the people she'd come in contact with over the last two weeks of her life was tested against these, as we've said in the previous episode, but no matches could be made. Falconer then described to the court how another number of other items were also examined for elimination purposes, including items of clothing belonging to two police officers and that a number of these also shed the same microscopically indistinguishable fibres found on Margaret's coat. One item of clothing, a regatta fleet of the same make and colouring as Derek Christian's, but from a separate manufactured batch that was purchased by police solely for elimination purposes, shed three of the seven different fibre types, the purple and green polyester and the purple acrylic, which made up 22 of the 78 fibres that were found on Margaret. To illustrate this point further, it's reported that one of the seven fibre types found upon a coat, the green cotton fibre that was microscopically indistinguishable from Derek Christian's Carlsberg sweater, was also shown to be microscopically indistinguishable from green cotton used in the fabrication of a sweatshirt, a polo shirt and a partly grey sweatshirt belonging to one police officer, a PC Lee, and two rugby shirts, a green and yellow one and a green, white and blue one belonging to another officer, a DC Marsden, that were examined for comparison purposes. So the green cotton from Derek Christian's sweater accounted for 14 of the fibres out of the 78 that are microscopically indistinguishable from fibres from other garments, and that is almost half of this fibre evidence that has been shown could have originated from other clothing. Robin Falconer's conclusion was, I quote, The findings cannot produce an unequivocal link between Derek Christian's clothing and those fibres found on the victim's clothing. And this was arguably the strongest evidence that was offered by the prosecution. 
It was certainly the closest to scientific evidence that the Crown could offer to suggest Christian's culpability. Now, despite whether the jury was a bit baffled by the lengthy and detailed evidence by Robin Falconer, and purported summaries of his statements can be found through a link attached in the show notes that you're best having a read of to see what I mean there. Whether they were confused by it, perhaps even bored by it, it was undeniably quite damning for Christian's defence case, who may as well not even have bothered bloody turning up to the court. They called no expert witnesses of their own to challenge any of this, where Falconer's admittance is seemingly crying out to be challenged in court, purely from the summary that I've given here and instead called just two witnesses, Derek Christian himself and Linda the Liar. Now we've already heard in the previous episode of the absolute shamble of bollocks that she came out with and got done for, so that left solely Derek Christian to appear in the dock. Now by this time also, his alibi of moving Lino had been removed, and his original alibi of travelling home from work at the time of the murder had been reinstated following police finally obtaining the all-important itemised telephone bill from BT, which proved that the Greens had been mistaken about the date that they'd given in this statement. And so he was questioned upon this in great length, pointed out to be a continual liar for changing his alibi. Reportedly, the prosecuting counsel Andrew Campbell QC tore him to shreds in the witness box, clearly scoring points left, right and centre with everything that he asked. A brilliant orator, Campbell even managed to suggest to the jury that even though there was no history of any documented psychotic or psychopathic tendencies or episodes in Christian's past, this was good reason to suspect they were actually there, saying during his summing up, I quote, Don't be misled by his behaviour. Pathological killers don't wear a sign on their heads or have five ears. They are as, in appearance, just like you and me. Don't be misled that because Christian did not attract suspicion in the days following the murder, that the killer can't be him. How do you argue with that? And the jury weren't, because it took deliberation of just over two hours for them to return to the court and deliver a unanimous verdict of guilty of the murder of Margaret Wilson, leading to Derek Christian being sentenced to life imprisonment, which today he is approaching his 24th year of serving. What do you think? Now, as I do with all cases such as this that raise questions here on the show, whilst I'm researching, I have a pad next to me and I make notes of any points through research that I think, ooh, I don't know about that. I'll have to ponder that a bit. And I did have a few written down for this one, some of which I've already alluded to throughout the episode. What I also do through all of these is stress, and I'll do it here as well, that anything I offer here is a case of me thinking out loud, I keep an open mind about these things, and I challenge the evidence where I can do, because I think it's important to. I'm not suggesting that what I say is right or what happened, but nor am I deliberately trying to spout pure bollocks either, so I'll run through the lot with the questions that I noted down. And finally, I am not in any way suggesting that police got this massively wrong and that an innocent man languishes in prison under a miscarriage of justice. But what I am of the opinion of is that if the case were tried today with the same evidence offered by the Crown, I would have thought any defence counsel that wasn't as much use as tits on a fish could have fought and maybe prevented a conviction because I think the investigation and the evidence does have some flaws. I'll explain why I say that. Firstly, what is the motive for murder here? Robbery was unlikely as nothing except for a scarf was found to be missing from Margaret and there was no evidence of any attempted sexual assault. Her clothing remained intact. The only possible motive police could offer was that Derek Christian had left work that day intent upon seeing how it felt to murder someone, as plain as that. And it does appear that the motive was that most alarming of motives, opportunism. Margaret was attacked in a frenzy for no other reason than she was there at that time when the killer's bloodlust was at an uncontrollable level. It was theorised that Marie Cundle had been the intended target, but that the killer had been put off by the presence of her dog, so fully wound up to kill, he attacked in a blitz the next available victim, Margaret. And who cuts the throat of a grandmother if they are anywhere near normal? 
Straight away, I would imagine that somebody who is disturbed to this level to do this at random, there must surely have been signs, though it would be even more frightening if there weren't, of course. But no one reported Derek Christian as being anything other than his usual self that day, his work colleagues before or his family after the murder, and bar the one instance of depression mentioned in his medical history, so commonplace nowadays the black dog, isn't it? There's no reported history of any mental illness in his past. Barring the incidents mentioned from his military career, which were noted as all having took place when he was intoxicated, I know it's not an excuse that, but maybe it is a condition that acerbated any situation, there is no record of violence in his past towards his wife or any other women. Christian is not reported as having any interest in violence on screen or in literature, no, or a collection of weapons at home. He didn't even have a criminal record. But I suppose anyone can flip, can't they? There also isn't any DNA evidence that can link Derek Christian to the murder scene or the victim. I know massive advances in obtaining DNA profiles have been made in the 25 years we're talking about here, but even at the time, for an attack that was that brutal, causing such devastating injuries with such blood loss, there goes without the chance that Margaret's killer may have been cut himself and left blood, or may have left saliva or hair at the scene, that even back then could have identified her killer, but nothing was found, nothing that could be linked to Derek Christian anyway. There was the fibre evidence found much later, and of course, from a, for a blitz attack from behind, if the killer is wearing clothing that easily sheds fibres, then there are going to be some traces left on the victim, aren't there? But this, as we've heard, is less than conclusive when you really look at it. It's highly suggestive, sure, but it's not that undeniable, how do you explain this otherwise, piece of evidence, is it? And why would you risk keeping the clothes anyway? but get rid of the gloves that must have been worn to leave no fingerprints on the knife. Then let's look at the car and the crime scene itself. There were footprints found at the scene that the Crown admitted, I quote, The foot impressions found at the scene of the murder by scene of crime officer John Frederick Fox and examined by forensic scientist Gordon Charles McKinley and the tapings from the car that the defendant owned by Paul Smith provide no forensic link to this incident. No blood was found in the defendant's vehicle when it was searched by Colin Parker, a scene of crime officer, either. Reportedly, no shoes belonging to Derek Christian were ever examined, both for traces of blood or for a comparison against these footprints found in the mud at the scene. It's not reported either if the shoes belonging to Margaret herself or the shoes that the six other people besides the killer who'd stood around where the body lay were wearing were examined and, and compared to see if any of these had made these impressions. Also, the spot where the Montego had been parked was marked with a cone, and reportedly, tyre tracks were found there. Now there is no documented record of any plaster casts of these tyre tracks being taken, when this is surely standard procedure as these could surely have been invaluable when used for comparison against the tracks of any suspect vehicle that was identified during the course of the investigation, like Derek Christian's, for example. Obviously not enough lessons had been learned from the Ripper inquiry, had they? It was also later stated in a Crown admission at his trial that the vehicle owned and driven by Derek Christian, the Silver Montego Estate, Registration number E676XDT was first examined by forensic experts on the 14th of March 1995, just over a month after the murder, and also again one year later following his arrest on suspicion. Their findings from both examinations revealed that Derek Christian's vehicle contained not only no fibres from Margaret Wilson's clothing, which you'd think would be transferable, but none of her blood either. Now there was a massive amount of blood at the, at the murder scene from the catastrophic injuries to Margaret's throat. Reportedly she would have lost about six pints of blood due to the two slashes and would have died very quickly. Yet despite the painstaking forensic examination of the clothing that Derek Christian admitted to police he was wearing on the day of the murder that discovered these all important 78 fibres, there wasn't a single trace of any blood found on the garments. 
Margaret's killer would almost certainly have at least some traces of blood on his clothing or shoes, at the very least on the sleeves of any garment, and although extensive washing of the clothing may have eroded any traces in the year plus between the murder and their examination, Margaret's killer had got immediately into a car and driven off following the murder, yet no blood from the victim was found in the forensic examination of Christian's car just over a month later. Again, it can be argued that cleaning over passage of time may have removed traces, but the first examination was just a month after the murder. Does anybody really clean up that extensively to get rid of all traces, even those that aren't visible to the naked eye? So now we move on to the knife. I've got no problem with where it came from, how it was traced there, and that it unquestionably was the murder weapon. No problem at all with that. Derek Christian would also have access to this type of knife as we've said. They were knocking about everywhere at McCain's. But then so would more than a thousand other people, not including outside contractors and suppliers. There were also no fingerprints or DNA found on it that could be linked to Derek Christian, but this can of course be easily explained away by that he was wearing gloves. What I wrote down on my pad here was, why did the killer dispose of the knife at the scene? Surely this knife would have made, if this was his thing of course, a much better, more enjoyable trophy to have kept as a reminder of the crime. So I can only think that this act was done in a state of panic in his haste to get away, abandoned without thinking too straight about it, which for me also possibly discounts the missing scarf as taken for a trophy. I'm open-minded to the possibility that Margaret may not even have been wearing one to begin, and this is simply mistaken for having been taken. I also wondered why the knife was only discovered the following day, but this is unfair of me to say simply that the police are being remiss here. Then we come to the eyewitness accounts. The only people to have definitively seen the killer, as we've said, are Nigel Houseman and Martin Hornsey, and this was from a distance where they were so far away they were unable to provide a clear physical description of him. The two eyewitnesses who made artists' impressions Marie Cundell and Louise Gray both saw and described a man who is who it is indeed likely is Margaret's killer. Police certainly believed that it was, and looking at the impressions, it does seem both women are describing the same person. But a clean-shaven one. Two days after the murder, Derek Christian was described on a police PDF form as having a beard. How pronounced it was wasn't documented on the form but it emerged at his trial following evidence given by one of these interviewing officers that it was pronounced. Now I thought it was only Homer Simpson and Desperate Dan who could grow five o'clock shadow that fast, but I'm just saying that. This beard could be an exaggeration, a circling of the wrong option on the form, or misremembering due to the passage of time. Or it could be correct, in which case, it's quite a glaring thing for both eyewitnesses to omit from their description, isn't it? If it was Derek Christian that they were describing. I also pondered why no descriptions of any clothing worn by the suspect are mentioned in conjunction with these artists' impressions. A top or a hat, for example. Another troubling thing concerning the evidence is that these eyewitnesses who helped create the artists' impressions and who gave evidence in court about what they saw were never asked if that person was Derek Christian, perhaps because he was stood in the dock, suited and bearded. Wendy Price, the woman who was stalked by a man in a white car two hours before the murder, gave evidence at the trial about this sighting, but told the BBC's Inside Out programme, which featured the case as a possible wrongful conviction in January 2004, I quote, They never asked me in the court whether I could identify Derek Christian. They never said, is this the gentleman that followed you? I was never asked that. I know that the gentleman I saw in the court that day was not the gentleman I saw out riding. So, this can mean one of two things. Either this was a separate person in a similar car in the general vicinity on the same day, freaking lone women out, and East Yorkshire was awash with them, or this was Margaret's killer, and it couldn't have been Derek Christian. So, it has to be mentioned, did police possibly focus upon the wrong person here, and is it possible that Margaret's killer had killed before, 
and then went on to kill again in other parts of the country. No one does this as a first offence, do they? Come on. And another point I found interesting also is the report that police could find no undetected cases across the country bearing similar circumstances to Margaret's murder at the time, because I thought straight away of Helen Fleet, who was murdered in Western Supermare in 1987 whilst out walking her dog. And of course, there are a few more high-profile cases that match the MO of the crime, a lone female, maniacally attacked and killed, which have taken place after Derek Christian was remanded in custody, the first of these just two days after his trial began. And boom, we've already covered these here on the show, almost three years ago now, back in the first series of The Enthusiast, in an episode called The Dog Walker Slains. This episode documents the unsolved cases of four women across the UK, out alone in the daytime, brutally murdered in opportunistic attacks. If you haven't already, have a listen to it and see what you think. Now I've tried here not to pour water on the evidence that sent Derek Christian to prison for life 23 years ago, because it did compel a jury to convict him, and in the eyes of the law, he's guilty of the murder of Margaret Wilson. What I've tried to do is challenge it somewhat, and by challenging it, you do come to conclusions such as the fibres could have originated elsewhere, the knife could have been obtained by someone else, the car could have been someone else's, and so on. The evidence is circumstantial when you look at it like that. But it is compelling because there's a lot of this circumstantial evidence. And then you think, how much can you put down to coincidence before you start thinking, come on, can two sets of examining investigative teams be so wrong? What are your thoughts? I've just been thinking out loud here as ever, as I've said. Neither of my balls is a crystal one, and this one just seems to be a case that has so much unanswered about it. Derek Christian maintains his innocence from his prison cell, and although it seems largely inactive now, not being updated in a considerable number of years, a campaign was launched by his sister Tracy and his brother Kevin to highlight the flaws in this circumstantial evidence in his case with an aim for getting the case ultimately referred to the Court of Appeal. The website behind this campaign, Beyond Reasonable Doubt, has been a useful tool in researching and writing the trilogy, and a link to the website can be found within the episode show notes, as I said, that I invite you guys to have a read of, as there is found within far more there in greater depth than I can skim over here, and it does make for interesting, open-minded reading, I would say. There is even a message from Derek Christian himself on the homepage there. Now I also reached out to both Tracy and Kevin inviting them to speak to me personally during researching and writing this episode, but I heard nothing back from them, which I of course understand that's completely their prerogative to do that. But as Margaret's convicted killer, Derek Christian has consistently denied the murder it has meant that Margaret's family have never had any way of any kind of explanation or reasoning behind her death, and the senselessness of it, well, that must be something pretty wearing to carry around. One source that I found through researching the case, a Tumblr blog called Case Remains, claims the sad detail that it ultimately proved too much for Margaret's widower Edwin to live with, and seven years after the murder, in 2002, he took his own life. Though I couldn't verify this fact, as I couldn't seem to find it through any other extensive research. But if that is true, then you could totally understand, couldn't you? Grief works differently for all of us. It really does. I would love as ever to hear your thoughts and feedback concerning the episode and the others in what we shall call the Margaret Trilogy. As I've stressed, by all means tell me what you think, give me some constructive criticism Even tell me if you think that I'm talking absolute shite here or have missed anything. I'm not Sherlock Holmes, but I do like the hats. You can do so through the active thread that's up for the episode in the show's Facebook discussion group page, or through any of the show's social media links. Give me a tickle anywhere you want. Now I shall cap the series off with a full review of it in a couple of days' time, where we'll do all the mushy stuff then then a Patreon episode, and then a bit of a break to recharge and catch up with myself before I'm back very early on in the new year. And I have to admit as well, 
that I've already sketched out Series 6. I don't know how much it will stick to the Canon like that, but the ideas are there anyway. So I look forward to you catching me for this review, and then we'll even have a bit of a giveaway as I've got a couple of great prizes to give to a lucky listener, but details when I've proper decided exactly how to format it though. With that, I'll get off and start sorting stuff out. So all that remains for me to say is that I thank you as always for joining me here today, and I hope that despite the challenging times that we face right now, that each of you guys has a good and happy Christmas, with all the very best wishes for 2021, which will hopefully be a better one after this absolute bastard of a time around the sun, eh? Let's kick this one proper hard up the arse to get rid of it. On that note, I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys good and safe times. Stay safe out there, you guys, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, and goodbye for now.